Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, the murder trial has finally begun in the case of a well-known sex and marriage therapist who was strangled and thrown off her balcony, allegedly by her jealous, former lover. Prosecutors say that despite the relationship having been over for years and there being several restraining orders, the ex-boyfriend allegedly stalked her. The victim kept detailed notes of the alleged abuse, which were read in court. It's as if she were speaking from the grave. But first, a pair of parenting and relationship podcasters are facing felony child abuse charges. The better known of the two is Ruby Frankie, and she had a popular YouTube channel about her tough parenting of her six children. Well, one of those children crawled out of a window, ran over to the neighbor's house for help. The 911 call will just break your heart as you hear the description of the 12-year-old boy emaciated and hungry, asking for water, his hands, his feet bearing the scars of having been tied up, according to witnesses. The neighbor told the dispatcher, quote, he says what happened to him is his fault. No, it is not. We are recording this on Wednesday, September 13th of 2023. Our guest today is Josh Furter. You all know him, former prosecutor, current criminal defense attorney, legal commentator, host of True Crime Daily's The Sidebar podcast, friend of the show, friend of mine. Hey, Josh, welcome back. How are you? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this. It's been a while. It has been a while, but I feel like I see you all the time between social <laughs> media, talking to you, texting. I feel like I see you every day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, Josh, I have to admit that um, these cases are pretty horrific. Um, it really makes me question our moral fiber, our souls, when we can do things to children. Um, you know, we talk about domestic abuse a lot on this program, you know, the, the case of the woman who was murdered at the core 
of the legal argument is stalking and domestic abuse. And we see this all the time, restraining orders, yet you cannot, you just can't stop someone who's determined to kill you. Yeah, no, it, 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 you know, we continue to try to strengthen the laws regarding stalking and give people more resources. But if some, it, 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 it's, it's really terrifying to know that years later, someone can be so obsessed of so, over someone that they're going to commit this type of violence. And so it, it really um, brings it home that people continue to need to be vigilant and the laws continue to need to be strengthened on this. Absolutely. Well, our first case is out of Ivins, Utah, where two women, best known as parenting podcasters, are charged with, of all things, felony child abuse. Felony child abuse. So here's the thing that back in 2020, there were a lot of people like all of you listeners and subscribers who were like, wait a minute. You know, we're getting a feeling about the way she's talking about her children, the way she's talking about how she disciplines them, that we're concerned that something is not right here. And so an online petition started. There were 18,000 signatures from, you know, again, from viewers and listeners. And they were hoping that they could alert Child Protective Services to go out there and investigate, okay? And so it started back then. There were plenty of calls, police calls to the home. The two women to this day say they are innocent. They were in, you know, the, the mother claimed even back then. She addressed the allegations, said, no, 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 I'm innocent. Again, Josh, I realize they are just charged innocent until proven guilty. But boy, when those red flags go up and then they're followed up with serious arrest charges. And if you even... If all you look at, Josh, is the condition of the two children who were hospitalized, if that's all the evidence you look at, that in itself is very damning. Yeah, I'm glad you you made that point too, because we 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 sometimes think of abuse as, oh, you know, it, it has to end up with somebody in the hospital, or it has to be something so alarming that it's it's obvious to see abuse can be this kind of stuff too where it's it's this discipline gone amok and you have a child i mean the the way that the you're going to get into this but the na way that the 911 caller describes the child as being so emaciated it, it's important to kind of shed a light on all the different ways that abuse can take place and again, I want to applaud the people who came forward and this petition that they started. And we'll see if the Department of Fam uh, Child and Family Services, uh, you know, again, is left holding the bag here that they should have done something earlier. But, you know, applause to those people again for coming forward and saying something about this doesn't seem right. That's what we need is more people to come forward like that. Yes, and sadly, we have also seen on this program, which is something that we always, you know, try to I do believe the discussion sheds a light on thing on things and puts pressure on organizations and governmental agencies where credible complaints are made to the right authorities yet it takes a horrific tragedy for that situation to truly be taken seriously again another pattern that we see here so to a degree i believe that the system to a degree failed these children if these allegations are proven true the accused here are 41 year old ruby frankie and 54 year old jody heidelbrandt 
Okay, each is facing six counts of felony child abuse. The charges stem from an incident where Ruby's 12-year-old son escaped from Jody's home. Okay, here's a little bit that's confusing. I know you all are gonna ask questions and I can't completely answer them for you. So Ruby, you know, who had the show on YouTube and, and all of that with her kids, she's married, but she had taken some of her children to live with Jody, her business partner. So when the child ran, ran away, he was at the business partner Jody's house. Okay, if that any of that makes sense. So Ruby's husband, Kevin Frankie is not currently part of any of these charges. The pair were reportedly living separately for at least a year prior to this incident. He had nothing to do with this. And Kevin has said through his attorney that he wants his children back because all of the children have been placed in protective custody. Uh, the reason I want to talk about the husband here for a second is I want to make clear these charges are very serious because the husband was part of that YouTube show, which was about the six kids and the two parents called eight passengers. Clearly, everyone is saying, well, wait a minute. Where is the husband? Where is the father? What did he know? Again, not charged at all, was not present. They were not living together. The attorney for the father says that the father is a good person. He says that he's been distraught about his wife's arrest. The father's attorney adds that he's a very gentle guy and no one's ever made any allegations that he's ever physically abused those kids or anyone. I wanna make that clear because the whole thing is very dark here. And um, if anyone is indeed innocent, we wanna maintain that innocence. Okay. Let's talk about the background here. And, and do you find that a lot, Josh, that when you have a situation like here, everyone's like, hold on a second. Dad was part of this show. Dad was around all the time. How, how, how can he now claim he didn't know anything? Well, yeah, I think it's a, an obvious question and a natural question that people are gonna have too. You start to go, because when you're talking about a child was emaciated, you're not talking about he missed a meal or two. You're talking about that this was a systematic pattern of abuse, of denying them food that got them to a state that they had to call 911, escape the house just to go get some food and water. That's awful. And it leads to the natural question of, well, didn't anybody else notice this? It wasn't anybody else involved. So I think a lot of people have turned to the father and gone, how did he not know? It's absolutely right. You made it abundantly clear. No charges have been against him. It doesn't sound like he's even under investigation. So it could, could be that he just did not know with this kind of separated family that they had. But I think it's natural for people to go, wait a minute, what about the teachers? What about other caregivers for these children? How are they not noticing this de de continuing de decline in their health and, and state that nobody's coming forward earlier that it has to come to the point of the child escaping the home literally to get help yep yep all very reasonable questions absolutely so let's get a little bit of background for those of you who don't know ruby frankie because frankly i did not you know this was not um a, a parenting uh show that i i followed <laughs> <laughs> i got my own path here so ruby frankie became a social media influencer after her youtube channel took off her channel and vlog called eight passengers you know was all about her life in utah with her six kids and her husband kevin and at the peak of their popularity they had two and a half million subscribers but ruby's parenting style was harsh 
and it was controversial and her YouTube channel was actually taken down earlier this year because of growing criticism and because she would say things like she would punish the kids by withholding food. She said it in a snarky way, but let me ask you this, Josh, as a prosecutor, former prosecutor, if someone is recorded as making comments like that and then ultimately is charged with withholding food and water from a child as punishment, is that evidence? Can that be admitted? Oh, absolutely. And it will be. I mean, they're good. The, the prosecutors, if they're doing their job, they're going through all of the previous statements that she may have made, if for nothing else to prepare themselves if she eventually takes the stand, if this goes to trial and she tries to defend herself by saying, no, I never denied them food. They were always well taken care of. There's all of this impeachment evidence. But I think you're right to point out that it, it shows kind of a growing character of food and denial of food. If that is what some of these allegations and, and charges are based upon, um, and it sounds like they are, is going to play a role in all of that. And, you know, I think it's important to to say too, people have people have pointed out some of these statements that she made, and they're and they are bizarre. I mean, she's talking about her child went to school without a lunch because it's her responsibility to make lunch, and if she didn't have it, well, then she needs to learn and don't give her any food. That's you know, giving shedding that in the best light, extreme kind of parenting, but yeah. that doesn't lead to felony charges. Okay, people parent their children all sorts of different ways, and you may not agree with it, and some of it may seem a little harsh. That doesn't lead to felony charges. They've got six felony charges here, something beyond what we already know was being done to these children. And it sounds like we're getting a, a, a glimpse of that from how that one child ended up. Um, th this is some really serious stuff that was taking place, not just what we might consider, you know, old school, strict parenting. Yeah, absolutely. So let's listen to her describe how she parents and how she punishes over food you tell me is it snarky is it real is it cruel here's a clip and my kids are literally starving i hesitate to say this because it's going to sound like i'm like a mean barbarian but i told the kids i said i'm not even gonna let you eat breakfast until you get your chores done so josh in another video ruby's son says on camera that he's been sleeping on a beanbag since october and ruby laughs ha 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 and nothing funny about that if you've ever tried to sleep on sleep on a beanbag and she says that she took his bedroom away from him for seven months as a punishment for him pranking on a sibling really yeah I, I, again yeah i mean you know listen i i've got kids i certainly wouldn't wouldn't parent this way is is denying but again i'll point this out denying a child their bed for a punishment is not a crime but something beyond even what she's willing to admit on camera by the way was taking place with these kids and i think we're getting a glimpse of that or at least into her mindset and how she viewed her role as a parent and how that was, you know, very extreme, even even what she was willing to share to her followers, which is remarkable. Right. And we know that people say and do these things to get attention so they can get more clicks and all that. You know, I get that. I get that. But when you're talking about the health and the welfare of a child, yeah, I don't think extreme remarks or antics. There's no room for that. Okay. No. So 
Um, when the YouTube channel went away earlier this year, because there's been this outcry for some time, Ruby started doing a podcast with her business partner. That would be Jody Hildebrandt, who is a licensed clinical mental health counselor based out of Ivan's Utah. Okay, that's where the child ran away from. Jody is the founder of a self-help company called Connections, whose mission is to reportedly, quote, treat those lost and stranded in the darkness of distortion. Well, there's a mission statement for you. Um, but Connections also has got a lot of criticism for its alleged use of shame-based learning and treatment of others with dissimilar values. In other words, critics have said it is outright racism and homophobia. So it's not like Ruby went from one negative platform to a better one. She went from one negative platform to another. Okay, then Jody and Ruby start this show called Moms of Truth. Gotta love that. Well, let's just say that the window into what appears to be the real truth here opened finally on August 30th when Ruby's son climbed out of a window and ran to the neighbor for help and that little boy said that he was hungry and he was thirsty. The 12-year-old boy reportedly escaped a window in Jody's house. The child's condition was so severe that the neighbor was in tears when he called the 911 dispatcher. And we need to play this for you because you need to hear this. He has duct tape around each ankle. Yeah, there's sores around them. Oh, and he has them around his ankles. I mean, his wrists as well. Okay, this boy has been... Has obviously been. I think he's been. He's been detained. He's been. He's obviously covered in wounds. He says he. Uh, what's happened to him is his fault. You know, Josh, as you listen to that neighbor and then the responses from the 911 operator who's starting to get like scared and nervous as he continues to describe the situation. For me, the most heartbreaking part is, well, in addition to this child's condition, which is horrific, is that the boy says that he was treated this way and punished because it was all his fault, that no one to blame but himself for being in that position. Now that is psychological torture. Yeah, that was the part that stood out to me too. And when you think about, he 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 believes that mm -hmm. he believes that th this is his fault and that he is being righteously punished. And you're right, yeah. the the torture that he's gone through to get him to that point that he believes that to suffer what he suffered through and think it's all his fault, and then to still break out through a window and go escape and knock on a neighbor's door and say, I'm just hungry and need some food and water. That child was pushed to the absolute brink. It, that, that is just, that's the part that really starts to, 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 to make you feel emotional about this whole thing. Absolutely. A child that is undernourished, underweight, you know, has sores on his wrists and his ankles from being tied up 
this is not, I mean, this is based on the witness accounts, this is based on the court record, and this is also based on the doctors who examined this child and his 10-year-old sister, because then the cops go across the street and they're like, what the hell is going on here? And they find his little sister in the same condition. So those two kids are sent to the hospital immediately. Doctors confirm what the witness and the police are concerned about and the children are admitted to the hospital because they need to be re-nourished and cared for and then police take the rest of the children into protective custody and this gets like really confusing here because i guess all the kids were not with ruby at her business partner's house so the washington county deputies were working with the springville police department to locate the other children and then two teenagers were located at Frankie's home in Springville. So ultimately all the children who are minors are put in protective custody. So they're, they're all there now. So the four minor aged kids are in protective care in Utah. And then there are two adult children who were not, but <laughs> Dell children certainly have something to say about what was going on here, and I'm going to get to that in a second. So Ruby Frankie and Jody Heidelbrandt were arrested on the charges of felony child abuse. Following their arrests, YouTube removed all of the eight passenger and the connections pages from their platform. So all that's been taken down. So the clips that we're able to share with you were uh, harnessed by uh, other media organizations as part of the narrative to tell the the uh, alleged facts in this case ruby's oldest daughter sherry frankie posted pictures of the arrest on her instagram with the caption finally i think that says it all yeah and and again you you go back to why why did it have to get to this point if that child is saying finally what did what were they trying to do to get some attention about this and it had to end up with a child breaking out of their room and calling 911 before it all stops. Again, you alluded to this a little bit, but I imagine when the dust all starts to settle from this, a lot of different agencies, especially law enforcement, child protective services, are there's going to be a lot of people who are going to need to 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 answer for why it did take this long. Oh, absolutely because Sherry, the teenage adult daughter who says who cut off contact with her mother years ago has been a vocal critic of Ruby's parenting style. And she reportedly went to Child Protective Services asking for help and intervention for her younger siblings, <laughs> asked that Ruby be arrested and Ruby's two sisters, so the children's aunts, two aunts, also have made comments of support of this arrest saying it needed to happen. Had that child not escaped, I guess it wouldn't have needed to happen. That Well, that's a really disturbing point, right? I mean, how long would this have gone on if that child hadn't escaped? Would we, would we be ending up with a nightmare scenario of a child dead? Um, and, you know, you, you understand. <laughs> Listen, I'm not trying to say that these, these um, agencies are not maybe overworked and overwhelmed and understaffed and everything else but you've got several people coming forward now saying there's a problem here what it doesn't seem like this would be all that difficult to look into and be able to see this child seems undernourished there's a problem here this child's got scars on their wrist from being duct taped i mean these aren't 
these aren't things that are easily missed. I, I don't know, and I hope we find out. Yeah, and there will be a lot. And as you know, depending on the case, a lot of information is sometimes released and not and sometimes not. So we can only report what has been publicly released by the authorities and what's in the court record and what the 911 call tells us so much. I always say, you know, that the very first police report is always that 911 call. That is the first call to authorities of what's going on and what people see. And it's generally spot on. Yeah. Because the 911 call so many times is made by a stranger. Yeah. No, and it's in, it's incredibly compelling. You know, you say it's the first report. It's probably going to be the first exhibit in court, too. I mean, that is incredibly compelling evidence from, like you said, a person with no dog in the fight here talking about and getting emotional over what they're witnessing. Oh, terrific. And if those pictures come out, oh, my God. Oh, my God, if they come out in court. So, you know... Life is fascinating. When I talk about the moral fiber of people and moral injuries, please explain this one to me. So Frankie and Jody, I know, innocent until proven guilty, but they are charged here with some very serious charges. They say they've been suffering some health issues mm-hmm. in jail. Mm-hmm. Oh, and guess what? They seem to be receiving medical treatment. Isn't that nice? You know, yeah. they're getting food, they're getting water, and I be- believe the only time that they would be handcuffed or bound is if they're being moved. Other than that, and do you know what I'm thinking here? So I'm just going to say it. <laughs> these two are being treated a hell of a lot better than what it looks like these two children have been treated. Yeah. Where is the yeah. justice, people? Where is the justice? Uh, yeah. Just to play my kind of armchair psychiatrist here, um, if everything's true... Think about the type of person who's committing these types of crimes against their own children, but so disconnected or so able to justify their own actions that they go on YouTube or have a podcast to talk about what a great parent they are. That is the same kind of uh, narcissistic personality that then starts to receive some of the consequences of their actions and ends up in custody and they're the person who complains about their their physical well-being and their mental well-being and why they want special treatment i'm not shocked by any of that i know it's just to me it's just one more insult it's like wow amazing you look if they have a medical condition they will receive treatment whether it's at the medical facility that the prison runs the jail runs or you know, the local hospital, whatever. They deal with this all the time. It's just unbelievable to me that these two are bitching about how they're not feeling so good. <laughs> and they would like yeah. to get out, yeah, given the severity of the charges against them. Please. Nobody, nobody's shedding a lot of tears for their current No, absolutely mistake. not. Okay, so just a reminder here. Ruby and Jody are each facing six counts of felony child abuse. These charges represent three alleged forms of child abuse against each of the two children who were hospitalized. If you want to know how it's breaking down, it's not per child that they had in their home. It's the two that had to be hospitalized. And prosecutors allege that the two hospitalized minors faced abuse through physical injuries, torture, starvation, malnutrition, all of which jeopardized their physical well-being and then the severe emotional harm that both of these children suffered 
Each count of felony child abuse carries anywhere from one to 15 years in jail with a fine of up to $10,000. Again, Ruby's husband, Kevin Frankie, is not currently facing any charges. Um, the pair were reportedly living separately. Now, the first court appearance for Ruby and Jody, get this, occurred virtually on September 8th. Over a thousand spectators, members of the media tried to log on to watch this on WebEx. It crashed the system. This has struck a chord with a lot of people. And, uh, I, you know, I, I, it's not hard to understand why. I mean, you go on, you put yourself out there as this kind of righteous, holier than thou, follow my example, I'm a great parent, you're not, this is what you need to be doing, sort of a personality. And then when, you know, when the, when the, when we check behind the curtain and we realize that you're just kind of an awful person, if everything is true, uh, yeah, it's not surprising that it's gotten this kind of reaction from folks. Yeah. Oh, and the, the, people who wanted to witness this, which is their right as the community to see what's happening in a courtroom, absolutely their right to watch justice in progress, totally support this. But some of them, according to the judge, overstepped the bounds of the decorum that must be kept in a courtroom because they started shouting profanities, playing music, and arguing. <laughs> this was all virtual. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's an angry group out there that is not going to let this thing slide. Yeah. My my first question was cuz you know they they have all sorts of uh since COVID we've we've really advanced in our virtual hearings. Um but I've never heard about I've heard about the public being able to attend but never that they're able to actually participate. So I don't, I don't know what kind of settings they had on this meeting that the the random people tuning in were actually allowed to have their voice heard. So that was that right? was stood out to me, yeah. Yeah, I you know that's true because I do watch a lot of things uh you know whether especially around the country and a few federal cases that I've been following and you know by the time I get in there like nobody's asking me if Anna Garcia has any any questions or anything to say. So right. I, I I do agree with you. I'm like, how the heck did were they able to you know play music and it, I don't know if they hacked the system. I have no idea. They need to they need to reset their Zoom settings or something <laughs> for the next hearing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these two are being held without bail. Oh my God. I I'm gonna make I need a petition for this. They're being held at the purgatory correctional facility in southern utah first of all i want every correctional facility to be renamed purgatory purgatory los angeles purgatory las vegas purgatory duluth that is the fitting. best name ever fitting yeah right oh, i gotta fitting. hand it to yeah. utah <laughs> well, yeah. they got purgatory in there so um their next hearing is scheduled for september 21st and um I just hope that these children are getting all the support possible and they're being healed. Um, and I don't know how you recuperate from something like this. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. 
As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Our next case is out of Los Angeles, where the trial of a man charged with the murder of a Hollywood sex therapist has begun. The trial began a few weeks ago. However, it had to be paused because a member of the defense team got COVID, so everything just shut down, and now the trial has resumed again. The accused is 45-year-old Gareth Pursehouse. Now, he is charged with murder and burglary. The victim is 38-year-old Dr. Amy Harwick. Now, she's a notable sex and marriage counselor who was found dead in 2020 on the patio of her home and she had fallen 20 feet, but police say before that happened, she had been strangled. Now here's the background. Some of you may know who Dr. Amy Harwick was because she was quite successful as a marriage and family therapist. She had a practice in West Hollywood, but she was a specialist in sex counseling and she was often featured on television, in the news, podcasts, media. She was everywhere discussing this topic so in 2014, she even wrote a book called The New Sex Bible for Women. And Amy was also briefly engaged to actor-comedian Drew Carey, and then they split in 2018. So again, this is someone who's been in the limelight. So before her death, um, Amy also became involved with something called the Pineapple Support, which is um, a group that offers free and low cost mental health services to actors in the adult industry. Now this is gonna be important because she did a lot of work uh, with members of the adult industry, which is a huge industry in Los Angeles. I mean, huge. I know things have changed significantly in the adult industry and how people access videos and all that, but for a very long time when it was traditionally made and produced, it was produced in the Los Angeles area and in the Valley. So in a massive business, you know, where um, even our health department had a bunch of health codes that had to be followed and protocols that had to be followed to try and keep everyone as safe and as healthy as possible in this environment. Sorry, getting off on a tangent there, but I just, I wanted to explain like why she was involved with this industry and why it was kind of a big deal, only because it is, it was a big um, financial driver here in the area in Southern California. Um, this is quite a case because it's taken a long time to get this 
finally, because this happened in 2020, to finally get this to trial, then to have yet, you know, another delay because of COVID. There's something about this, though, that is sadly um, very textbook in seeing the progression of an abusive relationship. She broke it off with him. They dated for like a year. She claimed he was abusive physically, mentally, emotionally, but he wouldn't let go. And she claimed that he was obsessive. I mean, he was stalking her, she said. He had broken into her house. He was watching her. He was following her, she said. She managed to get several restraining orders. So again, you know, we touched on it at the beginning of the podcast, Josh, but it's almost as if you could sadly, tragically see the potential for this violent, violent ending. Yeah, the... The stalking cases that I dealt with as a prosecutor, um, they're, they're of the more frustrating and of the more disturbing that you will ha- handle in, in a domestic violence, family violence um, uh, arena because it is this like torture where many times the, the person who's perpetrating it is kind of savvy enough to know how much they can get away with without actually being stopped by law enforcement. And because, you know, there are there's a lot of things at conflict here. People have, you know, people have a right to go different places. People have a right, the First Amendment right to say different things. And so many times law enforcement kind of doesn't know how to handle a situation. It, they're kind of like, well, listen, you know, I understand he's parked outside of your place of business for eight hours a day several days a week but you know he's allowed to be there he's not illegally parked he's allowed to but this mental torture that that person may be going through knowing that that person is sitting there watching them and there's nothing that can be done about it is very scary and so it was very difficult to handle these types of cases because they're they're hard to prove sometimes too um but they often are the signature for someone who's really mentally disturbed and they can lead to, like we're talking about in this case here, incredibly violent and tragic ends. Yeah. Gareth was a computer programmer. He was a freelance photographer and he was an aspiring comic. Gareth and Amy began dating in 2011. And like I said, it ended about a year later. And that's when she started filing and seeking these protective orders, which were finally granted. So there's like a true inciting incident in all of this because, you know, and, and the trial is ongoing right now and there will be more information as that trial progresses. But the prosecutors have said from the beginning that there was an inciting incident that led to all of this. And it's, it's, as, it's like a Shakespearean tragedy here where horrible stars aligned, where in January of 2020, one month before she was killed, the two of them ran into each other at an industry event for the adult industry. It was like some award show or some expo. It was something or another at a hotel in Los Angeles. There was a red carpet event. Dr. Amy was there. He was there as a photographer. They meet and it's explosive. She went home that night and she sent an email to herself where she described what happened, how it happened, what he said, what she said, why she even spoke to him. There were witnesses 
who saw what happened, heard everything, and this is in addition and supportive of the email that she sent to herself. Those notes, that email that she sent to herself, how important is that in this prosecution? Is that of value? Well, absolutely. I mean, it speaks to the 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 fear because that's part of what you're trying to prove here is especially in a stalking case. I mean, know that this is now a murder case, but they're trying to to prove this element of fear um, that she had been suffering at the hands of this person. And and I I'm I'm listening to what you're saying, and I hope I got these dates right. I mean, just think about this. So they meet. They first start to date in 2011 for, you said, about a year. That's not a long relationship, right? But long it's, enough you, when it's horrible. Right. But what? But I guess what I'm saying is that for someone to then obsess over that relationship for close to 10 years later and just by happenstance run into that person and you're still so obsessed about this person, you can understand why that was remarkable enough for her to write that down in an email to herself. And and scary as in, and haunting as this is, maybe she knew somehow this would be valuable to someone if something ever happened to her. I, of course, do not believe in coincidence when it comes to crime. And I think that if he was indeed stalking her, then he would have known that she worked and did advocacy work for this industry. And if he was working as a photographer that night, working the red carpet, which is where they ran into each other, and she was an invited guest and was gonna walk the red carpet, I'm sorry, this was not coincidence. I, I think you might be right. Yeah, I, I, it's been described as a coincidence, but you're right. How do you, in, in, in a city this big, how do you just happen to run into this person you're obsessed about at an, at an event like that? Right, where she's gonna walk the red carpet and he's a photographer? I mean, come on, come on. Yeah. Okay, so even if we can't prove that, and I suspect that to be the truth, you know, she, like I said, she was so shaken that night that she wrote everything down and um, in trial, in the opening statements, the prosecutor read from her email to the jury and everyone in the court. And it really is as she, as she is speaking from the grave, describing her terror. Here's a clip from the opening statement. Dr. Howard gets to her home and she writes an email to herself. In this email, she documents what just happened with the defendant and her fears of what can happen to her at his hands. She writes, Tonight, I felt very scared. I went to the award show with Hernando. When we arrived, we waited in a very long line to do the red carpet. As we were waiting, I saw Gareth walk by with a camera. Clearly, he was working. I decided to ignore him and just not looking at that direction. I thought maybe he could not notice me. I was scared and felt like I needed to neutralize the situation. I don't think he was gonna attack me in that moment but this clearly showed me how obsessed he was. He told me that he thinks about me every day and every day he cries. He told me he lost his job when we broke up because he couldn't work. He told me that no matter what he did, he couldn't stop obsessing over me. The fact that he tells her that he thinks about her every day and that he cries every day and that he lost his job because he can't get over his obsession, I mean, 
there's something seriously wrong with this guy. Yeah, no, this is not, uh, I love you so much, I'm so heartbroken. This is a mentally disturbed person who it sounds like is going further and further into mental decline. There is no reason, like I said, 10 years later after a one-year relationship, you're crying you're, you're crying about this every single day to the point that you're losing a job. That person's, that person's life is falling apart. They're suffering some sort of mental crisis and it ended up in 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 an incredibly violent manifestation. And yet, what does Dr. Amy do? As she writes herself, she says she tried to neutralize the situation. She actually tried to talk to him and calm him down. And then there were several attempts after that where he found her number and he tried to contact her. So um, police said that after after that interaction that she changed her security locks on her windows, she added security cameras because she was scared. So on Valentine's Day, now, you're gonna tell me that this was just an accident? That Valentine's Day was the chosen day for her death? No. Really? Right. For this guy, right? No, it doesn't sound like anything's an accident with this Not one. Not with this one. So on Valentine's Day, this would be February 14th of 2020, Amy Harwick, goes out with friends, she goes to a Valentine's Day burlesque show, she comes home, she lives in the Hollywood Hills, and apparently, according to police, Gareth was waiting for her inside her home. She lives in a three-story home. First floor, she has a male roommate, and then she lives upstairs. Okay, according to prosecutors, in the early morning hours now of the 15th, Gareth allegedly attacked Amy. He strangled her in her bedroom there on the third floor. Again, these are the allegations. And then Amy was thrown from her balcony, dropped 20 feet, landing on the patio in her backyard. Amy has a roommate, Michael Herman, who lives on the first floor. He heard something. He was looking for his cell phone, said he couldn't find it. He panicked. He ran outside, was screaming, trying to see if he could get a neighbor to help call 911. Meanwhile, Amy's already been tossed from the third floor down to the patio below. When police get there, they say that she is still breathing, but she died a few hours later at the hospital. So doctors said, and then the um, e examination of uh, the body by the medical examiner determined that she suffered both brain and liver damage from the attack, that she had a shattered pelvis. The cause of death was ruled as a combination of manual strangulation and blunt force trauma. Now, here's the defense. So Gareth is saying, this is what his defense is saying. Yes, he was there and he just wanted to talk to her. And that's, and then it was an accident. He just wanted to talk to her and straighten things out. How would you rate this defense? <laughs> uh, not great. Um, I think it's one of those defenses where I don't, I don't think they have much else to work with. Um, but there's actually an, a little interesting legal point in, in this, in that there's a, there's a concept in the law called felony murder. And where if you are committing certain types of felonies, residential burglary, which he's committing here, is one of them, and a death takes place, that you are on the hook for first degree murder under this felony murder rule. The idea being no one participates in a in a residential burglary 
not without the idea that some danger could be involved and people could end up losing their lives. This could end badly is what you're saying. Correct. The person should know that. Correct. California dramatically changed their felony murder rule uh, a, a couple years ago to take that almost entirely gut it to the point that you now have to show that the death was intended. So that's why I think they're able to make this argument. If it's an accident, they don't have to deal with the felony murder rule because if it was an accident, it wouldn't matter before with the felony murder rule. You, you committed a residential burglary and somebody ended up dead, that's first degree murder. Now they're able to say, yeah, he committed a residential burglary. We'll give you that. Residential burglary carries, you know, I don't know, five years or so time in prison. But the accident, but it's an accident that led to her death. Therefore, I shouldn't be held responsible and be held 25 years to life on a first degree murder charge. I think that's the little le legal wrinkle that's taking place in this case. Leave it to California to yet <laughs> dumb down another law. It's almost as if the greatest threat to our public safety in the state of California and in Los Angeles County in particular seems to be the people in charge of our laws or enforcing them. It's very hard to argue against that, yeah. They are the greatest threat to our public safety. Yeah. Man, oh man, only we could do something so stupid. Okay, so then that makes sense as to why they're like, yeah, he was there, but he just wanted to talk to her. And right. again, you know, given his pattern, I think it actually is plausible to believe that in his brain, he thought, I can get to her and I can talk to her. However, there was some other evidence found at the scene and at his home, which makes you think he truly, truly wasn't there just to talk to her as the obsessed man that he appears to be. This is what really concerns me. So crime scene investigators say that they discovered that you know the house had clearly been broken into through the French doors. They say that there was DNA evidence that matched Gareth, uh, a smear of blood on the doors and then underneath Amy's fingernails was his DNA, according to investigators. And there is just absolutely no explanation for having his DNA under her fingernails. I mean, there's, that's not a conversation. That's not listen to me a minute. Right. So here's the, cr the even creepier, scarier part of this. So they found, police found a syringe at the crime scene that contained a lethal dose of all things nicotine. And then they say when they searched Gareth's house, they found a matching syringe with an equal amount of nicotine. So what was he gonna do? That, that, that was the part, I mean, this whole thing is strange and bizarre and horrible, but that was the part I, that really stuck out to me. I've never heard of that before. One, I don't even know where you go get liquid nic nicotine. Two, I didn't know it was something that could be used to facilitate somebody's death. I imagine I could, I could anything think in about excess, over, right? Oh, right, overdosing on anything, like you said. But yeah, the, it was in a syringe. I mean, it, it, and then it's and the 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 real clincher is the the point you make that there was another matching syringe back at his house. It leads you to kind of this idea of was he going to go there and take her life and then go back and take his own life and it's just such a bizarre in all of this. I it, that was the one that just like really threw me for a loop. It sounds premeditated. Yeah, 
Oh, absolutely. It sounds premeditated. So he gets arrested the day that she dies, because remember, she ends up dying at the hospital, and he gets charged with murder and burglary. He was initially going to be released on $2 million bond, but then later was taken into custody on a no-bail warrant. So there have been multiple delays with this case. The trial began on August 29th. There were opening statements, and as we've said, the defense has characterized Gareth as heartbroken, as depressed, um, you know, definitely struggling. They're admitting all this. I don't think you can possibly deny this. And again, their argument is he was just there <laughs> to talk with her to resolve the situation. This man doesn't seem to understand that the only resolution to the situation is for him to go away for the rest of his life and leave her alone. Like that part, he just can't seem to get. Um, when prosecutors mentioned the syringe that they found at the scene, the defense said, this is the defense, he was planning on using that lethal nicotine dose on himself to commit suicide. Now, you know what? Given the level of um, what's happening in that head of his, I suppose that's possible. I don't know. Well, I, maybe you'd have a stronger argument or the defense would have a stronger argument if there wasn't that matching syringe back at his own house. Uh, th that to me means he had different purposes intended for either one of them. But still, I mean, you know, I, like I said, many times the defense is just making the arguments that they're left with. And I think they have nothing else here because no one should. First of all, no one breaks into anyone's home to have a discussion with them. Right. And then no one has a discussion with anybody that ends up with them strangled and dropping three floors down to their own death. They, they, this, no one's going to believe that this person who was obsessed over someone was simply going there to kind of plead their case about how much they love them and that person accidentally ends up dead. I think this is just kind of them grasping at the straws that they have left. Yeah, well, if he's convicted, he faces life in prison. Uh, because of this lying in wait in California, that is a cer special circumstance, which would mean that he's eligible for the death penalty, which, you know, has been stayed here in California. And um, California's governor, Gavin Newsom, has said that he plans to dismantle death row by the end of 2024. Because here in California, right? What do you what do you what do you do with these do you, laws? What do you do with what these do you, people? What do you do with? Them? I don't know. And they've put it up to a vote several times, and the voters have spoken as far as how they feel about it. But he's the governor, so he took it upon himself to kind of make his own rules. Yep. Like I say, the greatest impediment to our public safety are the people in charge here in the state of California, without question without question. Yeah. So we will be following this case. Um, and as soon as there is a verdict, a decision in this case, we will bring it to you. Well, it is time for our comment section. These are the crimes that you all are talking about on our social media. And here's our producer, Will Updike. Hey, Will. Hey, Anna. Great to have you back. Good to be back. Josh, good to see you. Good to see you, Will. All right, so uh, this week we have a case of a man accused of stealing a neighbor's entire porch. Uh, this comes out of Quetta County, Georgia, where yeah, a man has been arrested for pilfering an entire 
what deputies are calling an expensive porch from a neighbor's home. I don't know if you all have heard of the term porch pirates, but they're essentially these people who kind of go around and, and they, they'll take packages from uh, from someone's porch. <laughs> yes. But I have not yet seen anything this extreme. Or so, a fountain. Uh, Someone once stole a fountain from me. OK, I get it. Really? Yes. Oh, please. People <laughs> steal everything that is not nailed down in this country. <laughs> oh, my gosh. A fountain. What are you even doing with that? A fountain for the freaking birds. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, according to the uh, sheriff's office investigator there, um, the porch Full size, eight by ten porch. I thought that maybe it would be. That's you know, a small porch. <laughs> I thought maybe it would be like you know construction materials, something like that. I can kind of wrap my head around how you how you might take the lumber or whatever, put it in the back of the truck. No, uh, this this was a full constructed porch. Apparently, it was very well constructed. The builder used top of the line lumber, and it was around a, a three thousand dollar in value porch. Um, kind of a funny note here. Uh, the uh, uh, the investigator went on to clarify uh, that the porch, you know, it wasn't just lumber or something. Adding, it would be what goes onto a house for entry and exit, which. Yeah, good to know. I am so glad that that has been clarified. Yeah, yeah. See, we need uh, that kind of common sense here in the state of California. <laughs> now, sort of an interesting note about this, right? The property might have appeared a little abandoned to some. The main home was actually moved away, but this structure was still here. Um, and the homeowner, you know, argued that, you know, that none of the items left on the property were up for grabs. Um, reportedly, there were no trespassing signs all around this property. Uh, and the defendant here allegedly, you know, just kind of blew right past those before helping himself. Um, so they identified uh, the the suspect here, Robin Swanger, uh, and they were reportedly searching for him for days. Now, a, a sort of an interesting twist in this story. At some point during their investigation, the porch was returned to the <laughs> property, dumped upside down. Uh, so I, you know, I don't know if it if it didn't match. Uh, his house or, or if he couldn't, you know, sell it or, or what happened there, but it did return. Um, however, they finally end up apprehending this suspect and he's been charged now with the felony theft. We'll see what happens with this, but uh, people are really interested in this. Uh, we got some shade from Death by Spork, which I really enjoyed. They said a big shout out to Officer Chris Stapler for telling us what a porch is. Um, I, you know, I, I love the clarification as well. Katrina W said with that type of haircut, I believe he did whatever they say he did. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a, like a classy mullet, I guess. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to be, um, I'm trying to be complimentary here. Uh, Donna M uh, wondered how this could all go down. They said, did he not think the neighbor would notice or that a slap of paint could disguise it? I wonder if that had something to do with it being returned. Like, it, you know, I, I just can't get past the idea that like, may, maybe it just didn't match his exterior of, of, of whatever of whatever home he was living in. Um, Haley M was curious about how he went about this. They said, did he remove it step by step? So it appears when it was returned, it was still constructed. So I like if it's eight foot by ten foot, I, I don't know. I just don't know how you haul something like that. You need like a flatbed or something. Mm -hmm. um, Gerald F actually had my favorite comment though. They said full on Blackbeard strength porch piracy. R. <laughs> love it. Love a good R. Love a good R. If you allegedly steal something, mm -hmm. and then you allegedly bring it back, is it still a crime? Oh yeah, it's a mitigating no. factor, isn't it? Returning it. Sure, sure. It it'll it'll help. Uh, but no, the crime was completed when he when he took it off the property. My question though is, 
this is not a quick crime, right? I mean, you don't you don't you don't drive up, grab the porch, and throw it in the trunk. Like, doesn't that require a little bit of construction and work to get that thing done? Right. So it looked like there was like some concrete foundation posts. So I think a saw had to have been involved too to separate <laughs> it from these posts. And I'm guessing that's how they were able to to catch the suspect here. Is that you know this took a long time. Uh, I haven't found anything in reports if there were cameras or anything on the property, but there had to have been something or maybe a few neighbors noticed. I, I don't know. Hmm. Well, I do believe it's a mitigating circumstance a factor that if you return the porch. His, de his, de his defense attorney is going to argue that he was only borrowing the porch. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or had, a, you know, uh, some a, a guilty conscience felt bad and wanted to do the right thing. I, exactly. you know, I can see some leniency here. I like it. <laughs> well, he'll have to he'll, he'll have to contact both of you for a defense. Uh, oh, I don't gosh. know how the how the bar works there in Georgia, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure you can get it figured out. Uh, but that'll do it for this week's comment section. Thank you so much, everyone who left us. You can do that over on our YouTube community page. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Thank you so much, and I'll see you all next week. I will. So we've got a programming note for everyone. This Friday on ABC's 2020, I will be discussing the case of Michael Turney. That's the Arizona father who was arrested and accused of killing his 17-year-old stepdaughter, Alyssa. Michael was recently acquitted of the charges by the trial judge who ruled that the charges had to be dropped because the prosecution had not presented sufficient evidence. It was a stunning decision because the judge made the ruling before the jury even had a chance to hear the whole case. Alyssa disappeared in 2001 on the last day of high school, has never been seen alive since. Here's a clip. The last time I set foot on this desert road, I was reporting on a vibrant teenage girl named Alyssa Turney. Alyssa Turney hasn't been seen in years. No crime scene, no body. It looks like a runaway case. A 17-year-old girl who wanted to live her own life. Obviously, there was more to this story. Michael Turney raised Alyssa. He's very protective of her. Boy, did they find all kinds of other stuff. There were guns lined up all along the hallway. Improvised explosive devices, pipe bombs. We had to evacuate not just that house, but that entire block. Michael Turney wouldn't talk to the FBI, he wouldn't talk to the police department, but there is one person he did speak with. I'm John Quinones. They find some pretty disturbing things. Isn't that amazing? And now, for the first time since 2009, Michael Turney is sitting down with 2020 again. Now, Friday night, the story that took decades to unravel. And a brand new shocker. That was the jaw drop moment. I was shaking, and I don't shake. This stunning all-new 2020 true crime event. I had no idea what we were about to discover. Friday night at 9, 8 central on ABC. 2020 airs Friday, September 15th at 9 p.m., and you can stream it on Hulu. It is such a puzzling case. Um, the, the only thing I want to ask you about this, Josh, I know we didn't get a chance to talk about it, but in every case, when you are a defense attorney at some point or several points in the trial, the defense always says to the judge, judge, the prosecution has failed to prove their case, and we ask you to dismiss. I mean, it's like, it's a formality, right? Every attorney does that, and every judge, like 99% of the time says, no, we're proceeding with the trial. In this yeah. case, the judge said, you know what? You're right, there's not enough evidence. Dismissed. No, you're right, it, it is kind of formality that the, you, 
usually it's just to preserve that issue on appeal or for, for whatever reason you, you think you might have an argument later on. But yes, every every defense attorney will say, hey, listen, before we even put on our case, they haven't met the burden. Like you said, probably more than 99 times out of 100, it's just summarily dismissed. Something must have occurred in this case that the judge just didn't even feel they had enough evidence given everything the prosecution had to offer to even put that in front of a jury, which is remarkable. It is. It's an amazing, amazing case because that rarely ever happens. Yeah. And this is a case that's been making headlines for decades, for decades. And so to have this final twist in this conversation about what happened. And at the end of the day, you know what? We still don't know what happened to Alyssa. We still don't know. We still don't know. We're no closer to justice or finding her. Of course, she is presumed dead at this point because there's been no indication of life at any point. But man, you know, that was just so shocking to not let the jury finish with their job because it was during trial. So um, it's a fascinating case, one we've covered before, and hopefully um, 2020's version will, will give you the whole big picture of it. Also, one other thing we, we want to let everybody know, we did this really special podcast that um, dropped last week about um, this mutiny that took place on the wager in 1742. Okay, I know, Josh, I can see your face and you're like, really? You did a podcast on this? This is a crime? I'm like, well, mutiny is a crime. Yes. Um, I know it was a real stretch for us. And the reason I want to remind everyone that it's out there is like the comments have been unbelievable. A bunch of people were like, I'm not listening to a podcast from 1742 and a mutiny. And then the people who did were like, oh my God, he's an amazing storyteller. It's like, you're like a kid sitting there. He's riveting, he's so interesting. Um, and because the comments have been so overwhelming, I just wanted to let everybody know, yeah, it's a totally different kind of podcast. It's a crime. Um, we did something different and he's a great storyteller. So I hope that you'll give him a chance because it's he is the most fascinating person we've had on the podcast. Beside you, of course, Josh. <laughs> Thank you. So what are you up to these days? Where can people find you? All that good stuff. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I, I missed doing this. This was fun. Um, I say fun, even though the cases we talk about are always so awful, but this was fun chatting with you about them. Um, I'm on Instagram and Twitter at Joshua Ritter ESQ. And please check out the, the sidebar episodes that we have on this same channel. Yeah, every week. And they come out what day of the week? Tuesdays. Tuesdays. Okay. Tuesdays, us on Fridays. Uh, you can find this episode, all our episodes, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to our YouTube channel, sign up for our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. This is True Crime Daily, the podcast. And as we always say, don't do crime. <laughs> <laughs>